Today's episode is brought to you by Brilliant. Head over to brilliant.org forward slash giants and crowns or go to giantsandcrowns.com forward slash brilliant. You know, um, one of the reasons why we started Giants and Crowns uh, is to really focus on and exercise extracting lessons learned. We're hosting these conversations in the hopes that the actions taken by our guests, the decisions they've made can help inform the decisions that we will all make as business owners, as generalists, as scientists, as designers, as photographers, as as producers, as creatives, um, but even more more so than all that as lifelong learners. So I I fundamentally think that, and I think you, you guys would agree as well, to be a great thinker, to be a great learner, you have to have multiple perspectives, multiple models, a diversity in perspective. Um, you need to be multidisciplinary. Brilliant is hands down one of the best places to polish up and do that in an engaged and active, interactive way. And you know, there's, there's actually this really dope quote by Charlie Munger. He talks about Charlie Munger, the partner at Warren Buffett um, over at Brookshire Hathaway and also an inspiration for the podcast. What he says is the first rule is that you've got to have multiple models because if you have just one or two that you're using, the nature of human psychology is such that you'll torture reality so that it fits your models. And the models have to come from multiple disciplines because all of the wisdom of the world is not to be found in one little academic department. That's crucial. Brilliant provides frameworks that are helpful for thinking and solving problems. Brilliant is a place where you can achieve true understanding by getting to the heart of a concept. Their courses are written by leading instructors and researchers who have worked to provoke natural curiosity and guide you through an interactive exploration of deep concepts and principles and ideas. So definitely check out Brilliant. Head over to brilliant.org forward slash Giants and Crowns or giantsandcrowns.com forward slash Brilliant. Support Giants and Crowns by doing that. And the first 200 folks from Giants and Crowns who sign up get uh, 20% off their first entire uh, premium subscription year. Um, so sign up, check it out. Let us know how, you, how, how you're enjoying it. Um, when we send out our weekly updates, respond with a screenshot or something. That, that'd be awesome. Let us know that you're part of the crew. Um, all right. Thank you so much. is Jordan Benashi. I'm the chief revenue officer at a company called Avenue HQ. We provide marketing, realtor uh, services, and software. And uh, I've been here for just under a year, coming up on my, my one year, so my, my cliff day. We, we joke around here. And um, prior to that, I co-founded and was the VP marketing at a company called Bench Accounting. Um, so I started that almost seven years ago when, when we jot down the ideas on a bar napkin, actually a bar napkin, and um, grew it uh, to today it's 300 people and, and, and growing. Um, we've raised 50 million in capital and uh, just awesome success. I'm on the board there still, and I had an opportunity to step back last year and kind of do it all over again and saw a great opportunity in a great company with Avenue. And here I am today. Nice, man. So, well, first up, congrats on the success. Congrats on the progress. Congrats on surviving all that, because I'm sure it was painful. I'm sure it was great, but also painful. 
It was both those things. Yeah. So, so I guess, um, I guess let, let's start with, let's start with like that, that napkin and then we'll migrate ourselves all the way up to, to today or perhaps even like before the napkin. Absolutely. So I actually straight out of high school went to go follow my dream of working in the music industry. Uh, this was in Toronto and after a couple of years of doing that, realized that that no longer was my dream. Um, obviously, <laughs> m- music is an awesome place. The business side of it uh, is less awesome. Yeah. Um, very, very difficult. Not a lot of money to go around. Pretty cutthroat. Um, and yeah, I didn't see my future there. So I ended up going to university later than, than most folks do. Um, and it was actually my first year of university that I discovered... Uh, a podcast. It was actually the very first podcast I ever listened to. And it was out of Stanford uh, called the uh, Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar. And uh, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't even know about the tech industry at the time. This is back in 2005. No one was talking about tech like they do today. Um, and uh, so I thought it was just a podcast on traditional, what I would call traditional entrepreneurship. Um, and then, um, but in, in the podcast, what they do is they invite all these successful CEOs and thought leaders uh, in, in the tech space and to go share their story. And that was kind of my first introduction to the existence of, of the tech industry. And it really gave me the, the idea that you can have massive societal impacts through technology and that uh, it was an industry that really encouraged people to think as big as they possibly can and take risks commensurate with the, the big ideas that people had um, and that you know some of those risks worked out and those are awesome but even if they didn't as long as you were passionate and you executed well they didn't actually hold failures against you in fact they, they kind of like to see that on your resume and at that at time on talk about business in that manner. And it just really connected with who I felt I was as a person. I kind of, I've been described as a disruptive person, um, (laughs) both good and bad. Um, And, you know, it was just at that moment that I I knew exactly what I was going to do with my career. Nice, nice. I want to put a pause on this for one moment. Let's turn off the video. Um, I got a little bit of lag while we're talking, so I want to make sure that we don't have that going forward. Great. Sounds good. Um, and let's also close off Slack, any torrents, Netflix, Hulu, um, anything that may be hogging up video or hogging up bandwidth. All right. So y- you were saying that, uh, yes, yeah, so just picking up where you left off, you, you, you said that uh, they you're referred to as a disruptive person, good and bad. Um, but that's really sort of reflective of like the, the, the tolerance that folks have in the entrepreneurial ecosystem to, to, to chase big ideas. So I guess, can you kind of, uh, walk us through like, what was, I guess, short or long, like what was the direction from that realization to, uh, say that first napkin and then, uh, then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah. So, once I had decided that this was where I was going to focus my career and, and really a, a lot of my life to, I set myself on a very methodical path on trying to get to really where I am today. Uh, that just involved while com- uh, completing my university uh, curriculum, studying as much as I could. Uh, about technology, about building businesses, and just steeping myself in in that world, 
so that I could be as prepared as I could be for when I inevitably did go start uh, my own thing. Um, the other thing I did was keep an eye out for the smartest person I could possibly start a company with while in university. And I, I discovered that person and, uh, he actually was, is my best friend today. And, um, later on became my co-founder and is actually the current CEO of bench. Uh, his name is Ian Crosby. And so that was kind of what I spent the remaining, call it three years of, of university, um, doing to prepare. And then after that, I, I went and got a job, uh, actually at BlackBerry. Uh, I was in Canada and, and they were the premier tech company at the time. Um, it was pretty funny. There's, I've got lots of stories about what it was like to work there kind of in their heyday. Um, but, uh, you know, that was really just to give a bit of time to, to kind of get my finances in order after university, learn a little bit on someone else's dime. Um, and then give ultimately Ian and myself space to, to really be both in the right place to, to go quit our jobs and, and start something. Um, and that kind of brings us to where we were at the time, which was Toronto. Um, we were both kind of a year and a bit into our, our jobs and, and, we were just at that point where we're like, okay, we need to, we need to basically do something cause we're going crazy. And so like all good things, we went to the bar and, um, started hashing out different ideas. And it was there that we came up with uh, the concept that is bench today. Awesome. All right. So then you decide to start bench. So what was like, what was that process? Like, what was the, can you guys take take us through those those earlier days, and then let's kind of jump through some of the low points, the high points of, of growing that biz. Yeah, so we 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 kind of got together at that bar and really solidified the concept that that became what benches today. Surprisingly, we didn't pivot too much um, from what we initially conceptualized. If anything, what we did is just had to pare back our ambitions to be more realistic with, with, uh, a timeline that, 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 that not what we had hoped, but it just is more in line with reality. We, we were like, Oh, we're going to do like 18 things and get it done in two years. And it's been seven years and we've got like one and a half of the 18 things done, you know? So, um, that was a great learning experience. Um, and then, but, uh, once, once we had the idea, it was just a matter of us getting to the point where you know, we could both quit our, our jobs and, and really start, uh, doing this full time. Um, one of the things that we, we realized obviously early on is that we're, we're going to need to raise some, some capital, uh, to support the, the team to, to go execute on this vision. And we started off by just testing the waters where we were, which was Toronto. And we had, uh, we went both to school in Vancouver, British Columbia. So we were also had contacts there. So we started meeting with VCs in kind of both regions. And at the time we're really, really disappointed with the types of conversations we were ha- having with Canadian, um, VCs. Uh, a lot of the time they were telling us that the vision was too big and that, you know, there's no way we could raise that much money in Canada to go execute on a vision like that. And so what we should do is kind of pair it back a little bit to something more reasonable. And it just went completely against the grain with, of, of Ian and I's ambitions. And, uh, and so 
we quickly realized that we needed to get connected to the U.S. venture uh, community, and uh, but we didn't have any contacts in, in, in the U.S. So our way of hacking that was to join an accelerator, and so we uh, applied to a number of uh, accelerators, kind of both second tier uh, and, and top tier. Um, really, obviously, with the focus of getting into these top tier uh, accelerators and. We did when we got into Techstars New York uh, in 2012. And that was, I think, where things really opened up for us. Got it. So when you say opened up, you mean, what, what do you mean in terms of like uh, focusing your ambitions a little bit or uh, building up the team? Like how did how did Techstars or even that shift to New York City uh, expand the aperture of what you guys are able to accomplish? Techstars was really amazing at getting us the network that allowed for us to get the company off the ground, the company we ultimately wanted to build off the ground. Um, and so it connected us with the venture community, both in Silicon Valley, SF, as well as New York. It connected us with journalists that um, were happy to cover us quite a bit during our early days, which was very helpful, the buzz and the marketing engine going. and connecting us with mentors, mentors that um, are still with us today and helped us really navigate the, the, the stages of the company. And so that really having that Techstars experience um, kind of allowed us to really launch the company we always wanted to do. Without that, it would have been a much more prolonged experience trying to get that contact base in the US and or, and or trying to do it in Canada. Right, right. So I guess so. What were some of the some of the challenging challenging times of of, of uh, growing bench, especially from I guess from that moment of of, uh, of entry to the United States or to to New York to say first hundred people, first two hundred people, so on. So there was quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Whenever I ask it, I always I'm always like that's like a it's like a fire hose question. So, yeah, so. no, I, I love it. Um, you know, I, I really look at the times where I learned most in my career, and um, you know, always wants this kind of like up into the right diagonal line um, that shows you know your success over time. Uh, and sometimes when you look at companies or entrepreneurs externally. And, and you're you're experiencing their growth. You you think that that's what it's actually like. When in reality, behind the scenes, to be able to have uh, a success like that, there is just tremendous ups and downs. It's just when you kind of trend line it out. You take in the good and the bad, and you look at the averages over time. That it looks like that that nice healthy diagonal line. Um, and I think a lot about my career and the times where I've learned the most and it's absolutely in the pits of that kind of like waving up and down like roller coaster ride. Um, it's not the funnest time. I certainly uh, it, it seem to have a more enjoyable life when when it's the, the peaks. But um, every time I go into some difficult challenge, I know and I've just been through it so many times that A, uh, I work my my butt off, and I'm going to pull through it. And B, I know I'm going to be so much uh, smarter and wiser as a result of it. So I, I really look forward to those to those challenges. So, can you, to the extent that you can speak to it, can you describe, I guess, in, in the first two years or so, what are those what are those challenges? What are those pits? 
Yeah, so I think the largest theme in terms of mistakes that were made surrounds the idea of startup mythology and these high-minded principles that we are kind of taught about or we read about that we're like, oh, I want to be like that. I want to be like Steve Jobs. I want to have the best designed X. I I think that, you know, the product should be so good that it can sell itself and therefore I don't have to invest in sales and marketing. Um, I want a culture that is the coolest, fun, beer swilling culture. Uh, and I think that's how you create a really effective organization. All these types of these these ideas that were especially very hot um, during that time, uh, you know, we, we really thought that that was the doctrine. Like you just do that and that's how you see success. And over time, we just really learned that all of that is a lot of time just kind of PR BS that uh, companies kind of just do because it's fun and interesting. But if you were to revisit a lot of those companies and see how did that actually work out for you in the long term, um, a lot of times it, it doesn't persist. And so what one of the things like specifically that we did um, was we were so, so overly concerned with design and our brand and, and avoiding anything that might tarnish that, um, that it, it actually led us to be a little myopic around how to actually do effective sales and marketing. Um, and this was my department. Uh, so like, I can speak to this pain directly. Um, and it's, it's when we learn to be, you know, less precious about writing Shakespearean copy on the website or, you know, precious about, oh, don't follow up with a lead prospect too much. Cause that's really annoying if you do that. Um, and then we just started like realizing that, you know, sometimes the lead needs to be followed up several times before you catch them at the right moment for them to put their hand up to use your product. And also sometimes you have to write what might be kitschy or blunt copy. Um, but that's in the end, what resonates with your audience. And, and so that's one example of us having to kind of take a step back and be this is not what we were taught. This is not certainly what we were taught was cool, but it's not a matter of whether it's cool or not. It's a matter of whether it works, whether it stays true to your ultimate value system. Um, in our case, we just wanted to help entrepreneurs. And so if you got to write kitschy copy that, then that's how you get through to them, then, you know, stick to your value. Um, and so that's, that's an example of, of a common theme that came up in those, in that first, you know, call it two years where we really had to unlearn everything that we were taught um, was the way we should be doing things and actually discover our version of it. Uh, and, and, and that's the reality is every company is going to have some version on this. You can't just copy and paste something else. You have to essentially test it and see what makes sense for you. This episode is brought to you by Culture IQ. The Culture IQ platform combines integrated culture management software with expert support from Culture IQ's team of strategists. This is so you can develop a culture that's aligned with your business goals and drive competitive advantage. Culture IQ is the only culture management platform and employee survey software that helps you turn employee data into action. 
Culture IQ's benchmark employee survey, intuitive culture software, and seasoned culture strategy team gives you unparalleled insight into what's happening within your organization, plus guidance on exactly where to focus next. To learn more, head over to giantsandcrowns.com forward slash culture IQ. IQ is another company that we can't say enough about. Great company, great service, great friends. Uh, but also, if you're if you're focused on culture and tracking it and doing well at it, Culture IQ is where you want to be. What was the indicator that focusing on the design was not pushing things forward as much as you'd like? Like, what were what are some of the KPIs, if you were, that you guys were tracking, or like how'd you frame the test or test the experiment? Yeah. Um, so I, it got to the point where we, we were that rigorous around our testing methodologies. And I can talk about um, the use of data and the non-use of data and the impact that that has had uh, on, my, on my career. Yes. Um, why, why don't we just jump into that, actually? Yeah, let's do that. Um, let's do that. Yeah. So, so um, Ian and I are very uh, opposing kind of personalities in some respects. That's why we are such a great partnership and still, and still to this day are. Um, he is what you would call quintessentially data-driven. Um, you know, his one of his favorite quotes is, in God we trust, all others bring data. Um, and I, I'm very much, uh, I would say, intuition-driven. And um, like, if you go to these personality types, it's... I, I, like not to like say this in a positive way, but like I'm like slotted into often what's called this like visionary personality type, um, where I can envision these really amazing futures and and then I really just want to chase them down, um, almost in kind of a hypothesis driven way. Um, where I really failed in, in the early parts of my career was acknowledging that I had a strength, but just because but because it was a strength of mine and because I was. Um, often quite accurate with my intuitions that I then became over-reliant on that and really missed opportunities to further enhance my ability to both execute my day-to-day but also kind of develop new programs or new ideas and test those um, in in a more rigorous manner such that we could have better outcomes. And um, it was through and now thankfully ian um always was a kind of a a check and balance against that because he came came out of very much from from the other angle and so that that was the balance um but over time you know you don't want to rely on other people to to help you have good quality thinking um and so what i've really developed most i'd say that's helped me most in my career has been actually equipping myself with the same level of acumen when it comes to uh, analysis and uh, quantitative methodologies in order to make good decisions or to monitor performance um, and pair that with what it already is my strength, which is my ability to um, intuit um, you know, potential causes for, for uh, issues or potential opportunities and it's really in being able to combine those two things that i felt myself both as an individual uh contributor but also as a leader really level up how would you how would you suggest to somebody else that they they go that journey that they that they level up in in a from a data perspective from an analysis perspective from a qualitative perspective it's good question (laughs) um (laughs) four five six years right you're 
maybe still still evolving it? I'm actually just thinking it through right now. Yeah. Um, if I were to recommend someone in who's like me, right? So I, it's funny because I can recommend if you're data driven, how to kind of create more balance there. Like what I've found, if someone is kind of overly reliant on data, it can lead to paralysis where right. they they don't want to give any breath to intuition because that is risky. Um, and they'd rather wait till they have all the information to say, okay, this is actually a good decision or not. And that can uh, lead to inaction um, or delayed action. Uh, and that that's actually a, a problem as well. Um, you're, you are in startups, especially in early days, always going to be without uh, as much data as you would, you would ideally like to have. Um, and so in that case, it's about finding the balance of when, when, when is there enough? Uh, and, and when do you just want to kind of take a chance? Um, the flip side of that is um, if there is a data or like whether the data is existing or if there's a method which you can build into um, whatever idea you want to go ahead with uh, without data, but a method in which you can collect data once you've implemented that idea to validate whether you know what I like to call your hypothesis uh, was was accurate or not, um, it's it's to um, always always incorporate that um, into the execution or the the plan. Um, and oftentimes, what can happen is people come up with a great idea, you know, it, it, it makes sense, and they just want to rush ahead and get it done, and then jump on to the next thing, and they really miss that opportunity to gauge just how much impact that idea might have had or not have had and so i would say if you're in a, if you're in a position where you lack data to to make an informed decision um then at least when you decide to go forward with that decision create some sort of mechanism to collect whatever you data you can to then validate whether that was the right decision or not and to what degree it's one of those two things one of the things that that happens is you might implement something you thought was a good idea and lo and behold you do see positive effects but if you're not measuring it you don't know the magnitude of the effect and so an issue that comes up is that there's an opportunity cost where if you don't actually recognize how powerful an idea actually was you might under invest in extending that idea even further if that makes sense you know so as as bench has grown and now you know now they try to have you but let's just kind of speak like generally across your career how do you translate that to other players on your team like how do you distribute that understanding that perspective across an organization also a very interesting challenge yeah not something that um i've seen mastered and it's actually something that we are developing both at Avenue and at Bench. Um, one one of the values that was uh, implemented actually this past year at Bench was a uh, experiment together. And the idea is everyone should be empowered to try things out. And um, in that process, in that value, what is happening is they're also challenging people. Okay, you can go try something else, but you have to come back and show whether that was successful or not. Because um, if it wasn't, then you know, stop doing it. And if it was, well, then we should share that information with everybody. And so, it really starts, I think, with the culture that you create. 
if, if you're rewarding people to just rush off and, and, and run with an idea and, and, and great, you did it. Good job. You executed a thing irrespective of how good that thing actually was. Um, then I think you're going to essentially steer people away from adopting these behaviors. So I think there is obviously foundational skills around how to think about collecting data, how to analyze that data. Um, and that's, that's part of it. I think more profound is the culture which you create, which then sets the expectations that this type of stuff is very important, that you might have the best idea in the world. And this is not even to question that it's the best idea in the world, but at the very least, let's be able to gauge just how excellent it is so that we can know how to respond to those results um, uh, going forward. So I guess one of the things that, that comes to mind listening to you talk about the, the, the impact of data and the way it can, it can inform decisions is uh, balancing fact and story. So there's this really good book called Factfulness by uh, Hans Rosling. Uh, came out, I think, like maybe a year ago. Um, it talks about the, the distinction between the two and how important data and, and factfulness is in our sort of day-to-day. But uh, story is really also one of the primary drivers to, to bring people to the well. Um, like if it's not a compelling value prop, it's hard to hard to really entice people and attract people. Can you can you kind of speak to you guys as a in your experience, the balancing of the two? Like I guess it's kind of like a culmination of your visionary perspective and the data driven perspective. Like how how do you balance those two? So I think story is where you connect with people emotionally and and it it is just a really powerful way to help people understand the world around them or have them see a picture that, that, that you or or say your leadership team see themselves. And so I think that's a very, I think core kind of like human trait to, is to respond to storytelling. Um, I think fact, like facts in themselves are, are interesting, right? But without context, they really can become almost like meaningless. Um, and so we can see this, like when you kind of share a metric, you know, it can be very common for at a weekly meeting at the company level, you share, you share a metric, Hey, churn this week is this. And, um, if everyone in the audience is connected to what churn actually means that that meant that, you know, 99% of your customers like decided this month that, you know what, we love you so much. We're going to stay on board. Um, and 1% unfortunately said that this isn't a fit for me, but overall that's, that's a really amazing number to, to possess. Um, and, and like retention rate, like then that's a powerful metric. If you don't share that story and, and, and convey the, the, the human impact of, of what like these kind of factor metrics have, then a lot of times it can just become this like routine mundane thing that lacks any, any real tangible value for people. And story is really a way to take facts and take metrics and put them into a context that people can really feel the weight of, of, of those facts or metrics. Got it. I, I definitely agree. Um, I guess so, so shifting gears a little bit, uh, growing 
bench joining avenue just in general like you you you've seen uh organization or organizations grow uh, and grow rather aggressively over a short period of time and we we in the very beginning we talked about some of those dips and whatnot can you can you speak to i guess some of the lessons learned some of the mistakes in terms of actually growing an organization like the the mistakes from a hiring perspective or that culture perspective like can you touch on some of those those pits for me the biggest lesson uh i've learned through hiring and cultivating cultures is how important it is to truly listen to people um that's really hard for me because i talk a lot Uh, i'm a salesperson um but all jokes aside oftentimes when you're listening to someone um, especially if it's an employee who wants to share good news or bad news or happiness or frustration, there's a lot of interpretation going on in your head. And, and I found it myself in the past and, and not just me, but just really kind of across the board is people are, are constantly trying to like interpret and make meaning out of what someone's trying to tell you. Um, and and the problem with that is you're not actually there just being present with whatever's going on with that person. Um, and so a, a great example is I, I used to, I used to really take any negative feedback about, uh, uh, my companies or my teams personally. I used to like, like, and, and not in a way where like I would like lash out at them, but it would like hurt me personally. <laughs> like it would be like, it was a, it, it, it it was like a testament to my character that things weren't good. And that was the way that I listened to, to negative feedback from people. Um, when really the way to listen to someone is to just acknowledge that there's something there that's not feeling good for them or that's not going well for them and just be there for a second in their world to experience that with them. Um, and then from there, once you've fully heard that person, like deciding, okay, well, how together do we want to respond and act on this? Um, and doing that now, that's like, that's a great example of how do you do that on an individual level? How do you do that when you have hundreds of people sharing different opinions, feelings, thoughts about their experience, um, or their experience or what's going on in the company? Um, and that's, that's a very interesting challenge. Uh, and I think a lot of businesses, you know, they pay lip service that they want to hear that, but they actually don't because it's, it's sometimes hard to hear it. And it's also sometimes hard to respond to like, what, what do you, what do you do with it sometimes? Um, what I have really started focusing on doing, um, at all levels of my team, both on the individual at the team level and organization wide is creating systems where we actually ask the the company at large through different forums um, their thoughts and feelings on any given topic. And I'll give you an example. Um, we uh, at Avenue last or at the start of this year really wanted to go and refresh the values. The values were created, you know, many years ago. Much smaller organization. Things had changed. And we needed something to reflect the organization as as it was today. 
Um, and initially the plan was like all good kind of values exercises that leadership teams do was to go off site and, you know, be brilliant and throw out all these ideas and debate these ideas. Um, and then kind of write it all, you know, write it all down and then come back to the company and present it to everyone. Hey, here's, here's the values, um, as, as determined by your leadership team, the people you've entrusted. And there was this moment where actually running up to that event, um, I, I kind of had this epiphany and I was like, you know what guys, let's still go away. Cause that's kind of fun, but here's what we're actually going to do. We're going to create a survey and the survey is going to be structured as a series of ad libs. So the ad libs, uh, and we're going to send a survey out to the whole company. The ad libs are going to ask questions like, the reason why I'm proud to work at Avenue is, and then fill in the blank, and you can fill in a couple of things. Um, the people I like working most with, most with are, and then fill in the blanks. Um, you, you know, what I want Avenue to be known for is, and then fill in the blank. And it was just a series of questions that were meant to elicit um, essentially angles on what was most important to the entire um like team, team base. And so we actually ran that, that survey before going to the offsite. And then we actually spent the whole offsite taking all of those responses from the, the team, which at the time was about um, 55 people. So it was like a sizable amount of, of, of survey responses to sift through. And we essentially through that, were able to identify themes across all the questions and across all the team members. And what was really fascinating was how, how uniform the themes were. Like, it was just like, there was this themes that just leapt out constantly about, you know, I only want to work with hardworking people. I want to work with smart people. I want uh, Avenue to be people first and all these interesting things, but it was just very consistent across answers and across uh, employee base. And the funny thing was, it was also completely consistent with what we'd have ideally come up with at, at that offsite. The difference being, we didn't have to spend that offsite dreaming up what we thought it was, arguing and debating what we think was actually going to resonate with people, because instead, it was actually just spelled out for us very clearly. And so as a result, we were able to quickly get to what were the, the, the values, the themes, the values that we wanted to go act on. Um, we documented the entire process. We took photos of all the sticky notes and everything. And then when we went back to the company and we said, hey, so we went to an offsite, we heard what you had to say, and these were the most common themes, and, and these are now going to form the basis of our values. And you can imagine the reception from everyone in the audience was very positive because they're like, of course, that's exactly how I feel. And, and on top of that, there was this uh, real sense of appreciation that um, what drove that exercise was not, you know, a bunch of smart people locking themselves in a room and coming back and telling people this is how it is. But it was the complete opposite um, approach. I love that. I love that. Um, it, 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 it brings to mind another question around recruiting and finding awesome people that can help you inform that kind of culture. Um, especially so you're, you're, it kind of speaks to a comment you made before, experimenting together 
in that in, in this particular example, you're sort of you're sort of building. Obviously, you're building the organization together, but also iterating other business together, and truly with the entire organization. So, uh, but I imagine that's all really dependent on each of those 55 individuals being stellar, being awesome, etc. So. Uh, over the course of your career, like how have you gone about finding awesome people? Not everyone can be, uh, or have all of your sort of finds been like your Ian find where you guys are like, you know, you find each other in school. So I actually haven't formalized my, my approach to this yet. Um, and that's, that's a bit scary to say. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, the, the easiest uh answer and certainly the one that you have to rely on at the start is you just make sure that the people you hire you are there's no doubt in your mind about where they stand when it comes to the values and where and 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 whether or not you truly and this is like uh, for me it's like very instinctual still unfortunately (laughs) because that doesn't scale um but i just I just have a very well-owned instinct that this person gets the values. They reflect the culture that, that we want to ultimately have here. And, um, and when it's rock solid, it's, it's extremely rare that it has not worked out that way. Um, and so then what happens is they come in, they're empowered to, to rely on, their, their instincts as well, um, as well as obviously all the technical aspects that they're looking for in the interview process. Uh, and then, of course, through that process, they are going to select people that also kind of reflect that. Now, that that can go a lot of different directions. If you don't do that well, that can turn into, you know, bro culture or all these things where it becomes a little bit more about um, it's like a homogenous group in terms of like, style and, and attitude but not a homogenous group in terms of values and that's that's the key difference here is what you're not trying to do is do i want to hang out with this person like is this someone that like i, I actually like that i you know person like you want to like them but like that you know you want to incorporate into your personal life or go out to the bar that is not what i'm suggesting what i'm suggesting is having a very clear set of values that that you're you're looking to see if people reflect naturally. And if that's the case, then that's regardless of their style, whether you want to hang out with them or not, it's not the point is that, you know, that this is the type of person who's going to conduct themselves in a way that's in line with the, with the, how the company's values are actually designed. This episode of Giants and Crowns is brought to you by High Five. Recently named one of Fast Company's most innovative companies of 2018, High Five simplifies business collaboration with a conferencing platform that builds connected cultures. It's the only all-in-one conferencing solution, including intuitive cloud software and purpose-built meeting room hardware. Plus, it's a high-quality experience with a 4K HDR camera and industry-leading audio powered by Dolby Voice. Growing fast with customers in over 100 countries, High Five is already trusted by the likes of Harry's, Rue La La, Expensify, The Atlantic, and Betterment. To learn more and start simplifying your team's video and audio conferencing, visit giantsandcrowns.com forward slash high five. So we're nearing the final minutes here, but before we jump into uh, Quickfire, uh, I-, I wanted to know, like, is-, is there any... What's another sort of major lesson, uh, given that you, you, you thought about it, that, that you'd love to share with us, especially that we haven't touched on? My most recent 
development personally is being okay admitting to myself, to others, to my team when things are not going well. Um, my instinct always in, in these situations was to try to shield others from, from stressors, um, from, you know, bad news, scary news. And the, the problem with that is while I know people, uh, appreciate the intention, they know. They always know. They might even want to not want to know. They might want to believe that, yeah, everything is is positive or that you're you're withholding something, but that's okay. But in the end, people instinctually know when you are putting on a brave face. What I've really been uh, building my comfort level with is having just very real and honest conversations with with everyone around me about the the current situation and i've found that that has been far more powerful in building a culture where people trust um me um are aware of of what's going on and also are empowered to be part of the the solution that 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 goes and takes on these challenges and um it, it's not all good right that that does introduce stress but i think if you can do it in a way where like there's trust and respect that uh, is the foundation of the interaction uh, of the inter, uh, interaction then in that case it, you you have that camaraderie and again that culture that that then says okay we're in this together and we can take this on together um whereas you compare that to a situation where you're trying to say hey everything's fine we're good this is good what have you meanwhile there's some problems over here that that i'm not going to cover or i'm going to pretend aren't an issue people in that case it, you know you lose credibility you you lose that trust with that and so for me it uh, and for them, I think it's been a, a very cathartic experience, just to be really blunt. Um, and um, but through that, you build such a tighter bond in terms of trust, and that that trust, that foundation of trust, then makes the process of going on and taking on those challenges um, far more effective, in my experience. That's awesome. I love that. I love that. I've always thought like the growing a business, running a business, much like a lot of other things, but this especially has the capacity to either break you down as a person or expand you. And it sounds like you just touched on one way to expand you, expand yourself. Um, so I don't, do you have a couple of minutes to, to jump through the quick fire or do you have a hard stop? No, I'm good. Cool. Cool. Um, Honestly, I'd love to love to go through the other items you have through your you sort of brainstorm, but I I have also have a, a hard stop at four ten, so um, maybe we can okay. we can circle back if I'm in Vancouver at some point, <laughs> or maybe just a second call. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. Uh, all right, so quick fire. Uh, let's 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 jump right into it. Um, so first question: Biggie or Tupac? Biggie. Why? I just like that East Coast style. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Um, is remind me again? Did you did you grow? You did. You grew up in Toronto, not Vancouver, right? Toronto, yeah. Right. So is was Biggie big 
in Toronto? Biggie and Tupac, were they big in Toronto, Vancouver? Well, certainly Toronto, both were huge. Um, but Biggie was definitely the, the dominant of the two. Yeah, yeah. I always thought, you know, being, being a kid from the States, I always thought that, like, the the penultimate rapper for, for Canadians was, like, Cardinal Fischel and, and Socrates and all these guys. I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with those folks, but... Um, I am. Yeah, so those were, like, the names, I thought. Um, anyway, <laughs> that's neither here or there. So, uh, <laughs> next question. Um, uh, what is a, a book or a number of books that have been the most impactful to you professionally and or personally? Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. He's the author. Yeah, that was that was a very eye-opening read. I think uh, next on that list is Sapiens by uh, Yuval, and I am forgetting his last name, but uh, also one of the most fascinating books I've ever read. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of those books that actually introduced me to how important story was. It's sort of our evolution as a as a species. Uh, I never really thought about it as like the differentiating factor, but that book definitely did it. Um, what is a a tool? Uh, what's your favorite tool or most impactful tool, whether it be professionally or personally? Professionally, Google Docs. I think <laughs> I, I think like Google Sheets and uh, you know Docs. I, I actually think that that G Suite, as they're calling it now is like right up there with like the biggest innovations of the past 10 years. I, I people just don't talk about, about it like that. Uh, yet, yet everybody uses it. And I think that the fact that that's the case, that people have just all on mass adopted these, this new technology and then don't even recognize that they did that speaks to just how ubiquitous and impactful that, that tool has been. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely agree. I could have said it better. Um, it's almost like roads. People just. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So let's say you have $100 and you have two weeks to turn that $100 into $2,000. You can't mortgage your house. Um, you can't sell the stocks. What do you do? $100 into $2,000. Can't mortgage my house, can't sell stocks. That's right. Um, I would come up with a vision for an amazing company. <laughs> I would put the first hundred dollars in on that company. And then I would go to, um, you know, moderately wealthy people who can <laughs> afford to put in another hundred dollars and, um, make sure I could really capture their imagination with, with the vision of this company. Um, I'm certain I could do a lot more than 2000. But uh, I certainly, I, that, that would be, yeah, that would be my path to do that. I <laughs> got it. Um, all right, so cool. The last question here is, or actually second to the last question. Um, you're allowed one meal for the rest of your life. This is for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. What is your meal? And give us details. Like, don't hold back. Vietnamese pho. Is there a particular type? Um, I, I always go for the house special, the one that has all the, you know, for, for, I mean, probably a lot of people, odd ingredients like tripe and tendon, yeah. uh, beef balls, rare meat. Um, but yeah, I just like, you know, throw it all in there. <laughs> I respect it. Um, awesome. So last question, uh, you know, it's years from now, 
and you've accomplished everything you want to accomplish with respect to bench or with respect to Avenue. Um, you're liquid. You have an island uh, or whatever you, you ambition to have. What do you work on next? What's the next major thing? Scaling my ability to create companies that are successful, that are really meaningful for both the customers and employees of, of those of, of that company. And the way that I do that is I both am able to invest. So put, you know, put my money where my mouth is um, while at the same time, providing mentorship and coaching and thought leadership so that I set as many of those companies up with success as possible. Awesome. Awesome. Well, my man, thank you so much to, for taking the time out today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Great conversation. Yeah, same here. You know, I had a good time here. That's that's one sort of objective fulfilled. Um, and then we'll go from there. Awesome, man. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you in a bit. Enjoy the rest of the day. Yeah, man. Good, good chatting and uh, great meeting. Thanks for reaching out. Anytime, buddy. See you.